Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. This was how they introduced the bill in the House of Representatives. For thousands of years in human history, we have recognized as a species that there are women and there are men. Yet over the last several years, there has been a perversion in our culture by the enemy. And the left has completely embraced the lie to erase the lines of gender and to convince you there isn't really gender and that gender is fluid and can be whatever you want, whenever you want. Again, more lies. There has been a perversion in our culture by the enemy and the left completely embraced the lie. That was Republican Congressman Greg Stube yesterday introducing the first national bill to ban transgender kids from participating in sports using their preferred gender identity. Today, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives passed that bill with all Republicans voting yes and all Democrats voting no. Complete party unity on taking the war on transgender Americans and going national with it. To some degree, this shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's been paying attention to what Republicans have been doing at the state level. Across the country, Republicans have basically given up on the idea of small government. Instead, they now aim to expand the power of the state to coercively reshape society in their preferred mold. In Kentucky, Republican lawmakers banned the teaching of sex ed and any discussion of puberty at all until sixth grade. In Tennessee, Republican lawmakers passed a bill this week that would punish book publishers who sell any book to a school library that Tennessee Republicans deem to be obscene. Today, the Texas State Senate passed a bill that would force every public school in the state to prominently display the Ten Commandments in every classroom. In Iowa, a group of Republicans has introduced a bill to outlaw marriage equality, despite the Supreme Court ruling that made it the law of the land in all 50 states. It's precisely those kinds of bills that are intended for the conservative majority on the Supreme Court should they decide they want to reverse that landmark decision. In Idaho, the governor has signed the nation's first abortion trafficking law. Not only is it illegal to get an abortion in Idaho, but driving a minor across state lines to obtain an abortion in a state where it is legal Doing that could land you up to five years in prison. Also in Idaho, conservative lawmakers have introduced legislation to ban all mRNA vaccines, like the ones that were used to fight COVID, though the sponsor of that bill did recently update that legislation, striking a provision that would have banned mRNA vaccines for all mammals, which must make house cats happy. I don't know. Republicans are also trying to expand the power of the state over other local government officials. Look down in Georgia. That's where Republicans have advanced a bill that would allow state officials to remove local prosecutors if they don't like the job that prosecutor is doing. And that means if Governor Kemp signs this law, it would allow Republicans to remove Fulton County attorney Fonnie Willis, who is currently investigating Donald Trump for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In Texas, Republicans have passed a similar measure, which would deny prosecutors the power to decide which cases they even bring. 
It would allow state Republicans to force prosecutions on things like abortion or voter fraud, even if the local prosecutors don't think a case is worth bringing. Now, none of these proposals are broadly popular with the American people, but Republicans are pushing them anyway. And they're giving themselves new powers to expand and cement minority rule in the process. The question now is, how do Americans fight back against a tyrannical minority? How do citizens fight creeping authoritarianism that is taking over the states? One of the most prominent examples of someone pushing back against a reactionary agenda is Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow. One year ago yesterday, McMorrow became a household name when she delivered this rebuke to Republicans in her state. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized, because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. Can Democrats across the country take a similar stand against creeping authoritarianism? How do they overcome the structural advantages that have allowed Republicans to rule from the minority? Well, I have just the person to ask. Joining us now is Democratic Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow. She's also the Senate's Majority Whip. State Senator McMorrow, thank you for joining us tonight. You are quite the person to talk to on this topic. And I, I guess I'd just first start with, you know, the big, big question I think a lot of people are asking right now, which is, it is, is it a fundamental flaw in our democracy that a minority is able to rule like this and exercise their power in what feels like a very anti-democratic fashion? It absolutely is. And I, you see this creeping because so many of our states are so badly gerrymandered. That's exactly what happened in Michigan, where because of gerrymandering that allows the Republican Party to regain control and remain in control, they continue to flank further and further to the right extreme. And that works its way all the way up to our federal government. I just wonder, though, some of this is coming in part in legislatures, and some of it is Republicans judge shopping and judges having ever more power when they run into legislation they don't like. Uh, when we're talking about abortion, for example, the arguments over Mifepristone, some of this is from fueled by what we are told is a grassroots minority that is organized and angry on the topic of, quote unquote, parental rights. I mean, does it surprise you, setting aside the gerrymander question, that the Republican Party, which knows it needs to actually do some winning here, is embracing topics that just don't have national support. I mean, at some point, they do need to win something legitimately. And in order to do so, don't they need to adopt some kind of policy that has some kind of broad popularity? You know, if you, if you watch the 2022 results here in Michigan, Michigan is now a blue trifecta state for the first time in 40 years because we sent such a loud rebuke to this brand of Republican politics, where Tudor Dixon, the Republican candidate for governor, ran her entire campaign on anti-trans legislation, despite the fact that only two kids in a state of 10 million people a year apply for the waiver to play on a sports team that matches their gender identity. The Republican Party themselves 
put out a report following the 22 election that noted they ran more ads about trans women in sports than they did about inflation. And if that's not an indication coming from inside the House that there's a problem, I don't know what is. But the lesson they seem to have taken away from the results in places like Michigan is not to come back to where a majority of people are. It's to double and triple down on crazy. So we have to take the veil off, reveal it for what it is, and point out that it's just ridiculous and it's not solving anybody's real problems. What what do you what is it about the trans the trans kid that you point out the the vanishing um like there, there's no evidence really that this is a, a, something that a, a, Americans broadly are grappling with, right? This this idea of trans ch- child trans athletes in sports. What is it about that issue that so fixates and animates the Republican Party? Because it's fear. You know, if you think about just the numbers, the fact that there are two kids in a state of 10 million people who go through this process, that means that it is very likely that a majority of people have never met a trans person, at least that they know of. And if you just look at, you know, the the instances of gun violence over the weekend where we saw an 85-year-old man fire a gun at a kid who knocked on his door and has already admitted it's because he was paranoid. It's because of the NRA. It's because he was watching Fox News and believes that everybody's out to get him. And it is legislating and governing by fear. It's really easy to fear something that you don't understand. And it's just classic scapegoating. Do you think that argument, and I agree with you, I think fear is so central to all of this, but do you think that that concept of fear and fear mongering extends to the abortion question? Because that seems to be, I mean, there seem to be a number of sort of cross currents there. There's a very, very engaged hardcore anti-choice movement that is in large part powering this against what is political reality, the political reality that the GOP faces on this topic. But as a as a sort of organizing factor, do you I mean, is fear part of it? Is it is it misogyny? What I mean, what about people having uh, bodily autonomy scares Republicans? I mean, all of these things intersect. We, believe it or not, just had a vote here in the Michigan State Senate to repeal a ban on couples living together before they get married. Michigan is currently one of only two states that has this ban on the books. And five or six Republicans voted to keep the law on the books in the year 2023. It is absolute madness. But what we saw with Dobbs is once the Dobbs decision came down, You could no longer have this conversation in extremes because previously there had always been a backstop. So Republicans could use rhetoric that was extreme because they knew that there was always the protection. But once Dobbs came down and that protection went away, what we saw here in Michigan is in Republican areas, Democratic areas, rural areas, urban areas, women were having real conversations about all of the many ways that a pregnancy can go wrong, that your birth control can fail, and you could no longer just message based on fear because this was suddenly real. And in Michigan, we had an abortion ban that was about to go into effect if we didn't act. Republicans are on the losing side of this issue. And the same is true for LGBTQ issues. Once we reveal the reality and we connect it to the fact that they're just distracting again from, you know, running more trans anti-trans ads than they did ads about inflation. We got to show people this is just to make you so angry and hateful and fearful about something you may never live through or never experience that you don't even notice that they don't care about you either. 
I do. I do think that there, there are some parts of our our democracy. There are certain institutions that really that really lend themselves to um, minority tyranny, if you will. The Supreme Court, the Electoral College, the way our sort of the the the, the way that sparsely populated states are dramatically overrepresented in our electoral system. It seems like the lower courts, especially, are really really important in this moment in terms of fighting off this kind of creeping authoritarianism. And I I wonder if you think the Democrats are aggressive enough, if they're doing enough. I'll ask you. There's a huge debate about Diane Feinstein, the the senator who is ill right now and the complications that that illness has uh, give risen, given risen to in terms of Democrats moving Joe Biden's nominees through the courts. Do you have a position on that? And do you think generally the Democrats are being aggressive enough as given the state of affairs with the Republican Party? I think we are finally starting to learn how to be more aggressive. And I say that watching how much energy and awareness there was about the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, about the awareness about what's happening in Tennessee in that state legislature, about what is happening in Nebraska. And I think for too long, Democrats really looked for the shiny new thing at the top. Who was the one person who was going to be our new hope? We saw how much money Democratic donors donated to Amy McGrath, $96 million to try to defeat Mitch McConnell when we were ignoring everything else. That's changing. And we have to keep going and recognize that it's the entire infrastructure. It is the local courts. It's your state legislature. It's your state Supreme Court all the way on up. If Dobbs did anything... It showed how important the states are, that states are the front lines, and we've got to keep our attention here and not get distracted by Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and whatever is happening at the top that's just going to be absolute madness for the next year. Well, we're keeping an eye on what Ron DeSantis is doing in the state of Florida, although, you know, he is obviously a national player. Uh, there is a lot happening on the ground. We appreciate your time, Democratic Michigan State Senator. Mallory McMorrow, thanks so much for your wisdom and your thoughts this evening. Thank you. We have lots more coming up, including MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell challenge experts to prove one of his 2020 election conspiracy theories wrong. He challenged them to prove a conspiracy theory wrong, and someone finally did. But first, it is not just Democrats that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is alienating with his cultural warfare. <laughs> I will tell you, who else he's alienating coming up next? Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity set up chores, and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
We will stand strong. We will hold the line. We won't back down. And I can promise you this, you ain't seen nothing yet. Thank you all. God bless you. You ain't seen nothing yet. That was Governor Ron DeSantis just seven weeks ago, ambitiously quoting Bachman-Turner Overdrive as the governor laid out his legislative priorities during his State of the State remarks. You ain't seen nothing yet, baby. And yet, many of the lawmakers who were in that very audience now seem to be saying, actually, we've seen enough. That is because since the start of its session, the Florida legislature has been moving at breakneck speed on Governor DeSantis's agenda, pushing through very extreme stuff like a bill last week that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy and a bill today that allows a jury to recommend the death penalty without reaching a unanimous vote, that kind of stuff. The big problem for Governor DeSantis is that the same people that he's depending on to get these bills to his desk, those same people are kind of over it. Here's a headline from Politico today. Deeply frustrated, Florida legislators worn out by DeSantis. They report part of the angst has been sparked by a grinding session where legislators have pushed through bill after bill and chewed up hours of contentious debate that's considered integral to DeSantis's expected presidential campaign. Many Republicans said they support many of DeSantis's priorities, but have seen their own priority bills get waylaid or slowed down to help him. They add... One House Republican recently told a former legislator he was ready to resign out of frustration over how the session was going. Another Republican legislator privately said, we're not the party of cancel culture. We can't keep doing this tit for tat. Joining us now is Shane Goldmacher, national political reporter for The New York Times, and Brendan Buck, former top aide to Republican speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner and an MSNBC political analyst. Thank you, gents, both for being here. Um, You know, Brendan, let me just first start with you and how you see Ron DeSantis's movements over the last two months, because the ambition is quite obvious. Whether it will be met with success seems at this point to be an open question. Yeah, he clearly has bought into his own hype. Yeah, then there, there are quotes from him talking about how he's the new hot thing. That's a weird thing for someone to say about themselves. Does he say Ron DeSantis <laughs> is the new hot thing or does he actually put himself in the first person? So Ron DeSantis is an interesting character and I, I was around him a little bit when he's in the House. And what we have seen from early reporting, what I've seen personally is that he does not connect very well with people. Mm-hmm. And There were a lot of people sort of scoffing at that. Why does that matter? Who cares about that? But if you're going to be a successful presidential candidate, you need to make people feel things. And what what we're seeing is the people who seem to know him best are the people who aren't quite sure that there's a whole lot there there. You've seen recently a bunch of uh, House uh, Republicans from Florida including the one who represents the seat he used to represent in Congress, are now endorsing Donald Trump. That tells you they have seen him. They have been around him. They don't think that he has it. And it's, a lot of it is because he's just not as engaging and personable. And they don't give you that feeling. They give you that energy that there's something special. There. Well, he's also working them to the bone, it sounds like, Shane. I mean, the, 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 the fact that the legislature is grinding through these bills which are politically toxic on a national level at the expense of their own priorities or even their own ideologies privately held, because a lot of them are speaking off the record here. That's telling, isn't it, in terms of executive management? Is that an issue for DeSantis as a governor? I mean, I think that the unhappiness that exists in Tallahassee is not a long-term problem for Ron DeSantis. The policies he's pushing through have really raised questions, though, and the abortion ban is, I think, at the top of the list. He has framed his run for president 
as I'm the electable Republican, yeah. right? Donald Trump has lost. He oversaw losses in 2018 and 2019 and 2020 and 2021 and 2022. And, you know, he talks about a culture of losing. And so there are a lot of Republicans that, okay, well, maybe you're on a sense of person. But look, he has come out on the, the, the far right nationally on a top issue for the country. And it's really undermining that case, even among some of his donors who are saying, look, we're concerned that, that you are taking a position during this session that is supposed to set up your run, that's going to help you maybe in the primary, but it's not going to help you in the general election. I, I just don't, the abortion thing to me is a real mystery, right? Because he goes forward with it and then signs it. And we made a point of pointing, this timestamp on his announcement, it's like 11.07 p.m. This is not something that he's signing on Fox News as he has with previous bills. Why do it? I mean, what what is the I mean, he is a he is a strategist. He knows yeah. that this is going to hurt him. Why? Why sign a bill that he can't even talk about publicly? Well, there's there's two stages to the election, right? There's the primary and yeah. the general. And first, he's going to win the primary. And look, abortion is an issue, even though Donald Trump appointed the justices to the Supreme Court who overturned Roe v. Wade. He hasn't been outspoken on this issue. And privately, he's expressed some misgivings about where this is going. And so for DeSantis, this is an opportunity to potentially try to appeal to one of the most important blocks in the Republican Party, which is evangelicals. And so even if he's not going out there having a big press conference that can be used against him in a general election, he's trying to at least appeal to these people privately and say, if you have to choose, you'd rather have me. Can I, can I follow up on that, Brendan? Because we, yes, I get the evangelicals are an important block in, in terms of winning over a conservative majority, but so are women. And so are the, the, like, you know, the phantom soccer moms that don't support this. I mean, the numbers among Republicans on the question of reproductive freedom are, are not that mysterious. Sure, evangelicals would like an, a full outright ban, but the vast majority of Republicans do not want this. Yeah. So, so why do it? He's, he's falling into the trap that a lot of politicians do, trying to have it both ways. He, won't, he wants to make sure that he keeps the evangelicals. And, and to Shane's point, he can't afford to lose anybody right now. we got to remember, he's losing by 20 or 30 points right now. So he, he, he can't afford to, to write off anybody. And it's become a place in the Republican Party where the six-week ban is kind of, that's the, that's the new norm. That's the new standard. And if you aren't there, it used to be 15 weeks there. And that was a vulnerability for him. So he feels like he has to do it. But yeah, he has to get through a primary. He has to get to a general election. But here's the problem. If you're going to run as the electability candidate, you have to do things that, that are, that are electable. electable. Uh, and the other problem is, and, and Shane has actually written about this, I don't know that voters actually vote based on electability. They vote about people who make them feel something, as I was saying, to get them excited. Donald Trump gets them excited. Ron DeSantis is really struggling to get people excited. So I guess he thinks passing a bunch of really conservative things through the House and privately, I guess, communicating that to people is, is how, how you get it done. But right now, he doesn't really seem to have a line, a line of attack on Donald Trump. And that's one of his biggest problems. Uh, yeah. To the question of what kind of politician he actually is, Shane. Uh, CNN had some reporting about how the Trump camps and the DeSantis camps were lining up some of these endorsements. And it is a study in contrast, right? CNN reports, if the governor wants the endorsement, speaking of DeSantis, he should be picking up the phone and calling directly instead of having an aide doing the reach out, a source close to a House member said. You know who calls for the Trump endorsement? Trump himself. And that's how Trump is landing all of this stuff. Now, that could be something that, you know, DeSantis could switch gears, but it sounds like he has zero aptitude for actually the, the key part of, of politics, which is even more important than winning over the evangelicals, right? And getting through the primary. It's showing people that you know how to be a politician, that you know how to sell your message and yourself. And he doesn't seem to have that genetic, well, code, if you will. Look, one of the challenges that he faces is that Trump is in this race and Ron DeSantis isn't even technically a candidate yet, right? He made the decision to use this session in Tallahassee to build a policy portfolio to try to run on. 
And instead, he's watching as Donald Trump is starting to pick off one by one all the members of the Florida delegation by having them at Mar-a-Lago, by having meetings and conversations and bringing them in, right? He can't call them and say, I need your endorsement because I'm going to run for president because he's not telling people he's going to run for president officially yet, right? So he's at like literally a structural disadvantage in having these conversations right now. These folks have to get ahead of him, say, I'm going to back your campaign, even though you haven't even said you're running yet. Yeah. That's a tough sell. Why hasn't he announced that he's running yet? I mean, what is the point? Do you have any intel well, on that? Well, what they've said is that he wants to get through this session. He wants to yeah. be focused on, on his job. And right. that is actually, I think, one of the strengths that he has is I've run a state competently. I'm focused on my state. When that stuff starts slipping away, he obviously got criticism recently for not being there when there were flood, when there was flooding in the state. And if that, if that becomes, you get some chinks in the armor on, I've been a, a strong leader in my state, that's a whole nother problem for him. So I think he wants to maintain focus on the state, get all of that stuff done before he runs. Pass the most conservative legislation he can in the state that's not particularly pos- popular with people in the state or the people that are passing the legislation, and then use that sterling set of credentials to say, here we go, Ron DeSantis 2024. I don't, I am not in the business of prediction chain, but this is starting to smack a little bit of like Jeb with the exclamation point. Well, let me give you the, the silver lining version for him, which is at one point a couple months ago, people are looking at this as a two-man race with two co-front runners. And I really think there was a tough sell that that was ever the reality. Donald Trump is the former president. He remains the most popular Republican in the country. And so for DeSantis, the struggles he's having, they're sort of resetting expectations at, at a race where he can grow at a moment that matters, which is later this fall and the beginning of next year. So the, the upside for him is potentially that he's going down at the right moment in the race. That is generous. <laughs> Brendan, we're talking about creeping authoritarianism. We're talking about the way in which Trump in some ways represents an ADBC, not just for the party, but for the country. And I, I wonder if, you know, this is the true legacy. Like Ron DeSantis, in a way, represents the legacy of Trump, that all Republicans after Trump are going to be in this mold of sort of like conservative prize fighters. Damn you all. You ain't seen nothing yet. You know, the machismo, the I don't care what the national polls say. I'm here to to get our stuff done. This has been our party for a long time. We care about fighting. Even if even if you lose, we don't care what the issue is. As long as you're a fighter, that's what people want. That's what we saw in the House of Representatives. We would lose all kinds of fights, but as long as we were seen fighting, and Donald Trump saw that, and he was the perfect person for it. And yes, now everybody needs to be seen as fighting. It matters who your enemies are as much as what you're Yeah, what I you're think that's the for. point, isn't it? It's enemy. I mean, the, I would say it's, it's different than just a fighter. It's a fighter fighting for something that is absolutely distasteful to a vast number of Americans, and that's kind of the point. It all right? goes back to the deplorables. And, uh, Hillary Clinton called them deplorables, and everybody wore that as a badge of honor. They love the conflict. They love the fight. And if you're if you're standing for those people who are perceived as being attacked by the elites, I mean, it's it's the victim. Or the majority. I mean, really, this is the group of people who don't represent the country, and you are fighting for them as a point of pride. Being on the fringes as the prize fighter is the quote-unquote winning position. I do not get it politically. <laughs> I just, I'm going to keep saying it. I don't get it. You guys are going to come back and explain it to me, maybe sometime or never. Shane Goldmacher, Brendan Buck, thank you guys both for your time. Thank Good you. to see you. When we come back, another member of Team Trump talks to federal prosecutors, someone who likely has a lot to say. And the big lie finally starts to catch up to pillow magnate Mike Lindell. That's next. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. 
set up chores, and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In the summer after the 2020 election, pillow company CEO and conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell claimed he had hard, verifiable proof that not only was the election stolen, but that it was somehow China that stole it. And he claimed he had the computer data to back all that up. Mike Lindell was so confident in his claim that he dared anyone to look at this data and prove him wrong. He offered an incredibly specific and gigantic prize to anybody who could. A $5 million prize for anybody that can, that, that can prove the election data that, can, that I have from the 2020 election is false. $5 million will be all of these guys there, all the cyber guys, I don't care if it's media, they can dig into all this data. If they can prove that this is not valid data from the 2020 election, I put my money where my mouth is I, at $5 million. Why don't you prove it there so then you can win $5 million? Not only was Mr. Lindell's data not proof of some Chinese hacking plot, it turns out it wasn't even 2020 election data. It was just random packets of code and IP addresses and strings of random numbers. So now Mr. Lindell has to pay. Five million dollars. He has to put his money where his mouth is, as he put it. Turns out cyber forensic expert Robert Zeidman proved Mr. Lindell wrong. Zeidman won the contest. And now a panel from the American Arbitration Association has ordered Mr. Lindell to pay up. He has 30 days to cough up the five million dollars. Now, Mike Lindell told NBC News that this ruling was a, quote, horrible, wrong decision and that it is all going to end up in court. Even if Mr. Lindell ends up on the hook here, it's unclear how much of a dent this is going to put in the pocketbook of someone who literally plasters my pillow ads on Fox Airwaves all day, every day. But it is notable because it is accountability. This is the first instance we are seeing of Mike Lindell finally actually facing accountability for his role in pushing the big lie. And it may not be the last time either. On Tuesday, Fox News settled their defamation case with the Dominion Voting Systems Corporation for a whopping $787.5 million. $787.5 million for their role in pushing the big lie. Now, that probably isn't a crushing amount of money for a corporation the size of Fox News. But I will bet you that number is daunting to someone like Mike Lindell. Because not only is Mr. Lindell also being sued for defamation by Dominion for $1.3 billion. He is also being sued for defamation by another voting tech company, Smartmatic, for an undisclosed but likely equally whoppingly large amount of money. For years now, a constellation of conservatives and conservative media outlets in this country have been at best deluded 
and at worst, lying, but in either case, fomenting outrage about the results of the 2020 election. But it seems like accountability may be finally catching up to them. Must be hard to sleep at night. Hope Mr. Lindell has a great pillow. Still to come this evening, when Republicans in Tennessee kicked two black Democrats out of the statehouse, at least two of them were sitting on a very big and explosive secret. That secret came out today. We'll tell you all about it. Also, a member of Donald Trump's inner circle talked today to the special counsel investigating the former president. And this guy was in a position to know a whole lot. Much more on that coming up next. At this point in time, you are probably familiar with at least a few of Donald Trump's lawyers. Evan Corcoran, Christina Bob, Joe Tacopina, Rudy Giuliani, all of them sort of notorious in their own right. But there is one lawyer in particular who is considered to be sort of the manager of the Trump lawyers, the handler, the CEO of Trump's legal team, if you will. His name is Boris Epstein, and his job is to oversee both the civil and criminal lawyers who are defending Trump in his various investigations. Epstein has also been a member of Trump's inner circle for a while now, dating back to the 2016 campaign. He worked in the Trump White House, and he now serves as a senior advisor to the 2024 campaign. Because of Mr. Epstein's dual role, he's considered to have the most insight into decisions made by Trump in two key federal investigations. The first, the inquiry into Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And the second, the Mar-a-Lago documents probe. As a lawyer and senior counsel, the CEO of the Trump legal team, Epstein is of great interest to special counsel Jack Smith, especially because Epstein himself is entangled in both of those investigations. Back in 2020, Epstein helped Rudy Giuliani spearhead the fake elector plot to help Trump hold on to power. And he confirmed that much to my colleague, Ari Melber. There's also been reporting about the attempt to seat uh, fraudulent electors. Uh, is that something you ever worked on or would support, for example, in Michigan? Yes, I was part of the process to make sure there were alternate electors for when, as we hoped, the challenges to the seated electors would be heard and would be successful. Epstein also played a key role in the production of a statement for federal investigators, a statement signed by Trump lawyer Christina Bob last summer that said, to the best of Ms. Bob's knowledge... Donald Trump didn't have any more classified documents left in his possession down at Mar-a-Lago. That statement turned out to be false. Two months after Ms. Bob signed the document, the FBI found another 100 or so highly sensitive government documents stored on the premises. Ms. Bob later told the Justice Department lawyers that it was Boris Epstein who put her in contact with Evan Corcoran, who was the Trump lawyer who drafted that statement in the first place. Now, all of this is extremely relevant because today Mr. Epstein was reportedly interviewed by special counsel prosecutors. We do not know what they talked to Mr. Epstein about. We also don't know whether he faces any legal jeopardy of his own in any of these cases. But we do know he had the option to say no, to reject the invitation to be interviewed. So why didn't he? Joining us now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and the co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. Joyce, it is a thrill to see you in person. Thank you for joining me tonight. It is always so nice to be here with you. Come often. Um, first, let's just start. About, it seems like both sides would like Boris Epstein to come and chat, right? On one hand, the prosecutors obviously have a lot to talk to him about. But what does Epstein himself stand to gain here? 
Right. Well, what he stands to gain is what he won't get, a subpoena. And I think the hope, perhaps, is that he can go in and speak voluntarily, and that's the end of it. You think it's about avoiding the inevitable subpoena and not, for example, casing the joint, as they say, you know, getting a read into what exactly federal prosecutors are interested in? Well, I think that that's fair to say. And look, he's represented by very sophisticated counsel, one of the lawyers who represents Trump. I'm sure that they'd like to get as much information as they can get about where the focus of the special counsel currently is. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I mean, he's he's remarkably intertwined in a lot of Trump business, but as it pertains to Mar-a-Lago and the fake electors plot, which do you think is potentially the more urgent line of questioning if you're a prosecutor and you're talking to Boris Epstein? Right. So remarkably intertwined is exactly right. He's there in 2016. He's there today. Today he's with the campaign. He's overseeing lawyers. And the interesting thing prosecutors are always looking for is what they don't know. Right. Um, But given that incredibly radical host of connections, there is still this just glaring point that prosecutors are focused on. How did a false statement get made to DOJ? That's the obstruction that lived in the, heart the of classified it, right? documents case. It, it is. And the important thing is, if this is just a case about possession of classified documents, there's probably not a prosecution. It's the obstruction that elevates it. And Boris Epstein is so central to that. We don't know, for instance, what Christina Bob said about her interactions with him or Evan Corcoran. So it's a little bit, I mean, we're flying blind, as we always are when we try <laughs> yeah. to second-guess prosecutors. But it's very clear that there's something that prosecutors are very interested in there. Do you, um, I think for a while, we've been looking at the sort of tier of witness that the special prosecutor has been talking to. And once the special prosecutor was able to pierce attorney-client privilege in terms of the conversations between Donald Trump and Evan Corcoran, his lawyer on Mar-a-Lago, I think a lot of folks said, this investigation is nearing its conclusion, right? That's the guy who knows everything. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, actually, the guy behind the guy in Mar-a-Lago is really Boris Epstein, it sounds like. He's very, he's the, the center of the spider's web, if you would. Well, he is. And of course, what you want to do is go all the way to the top. You want to find the person who's the most culpable. Right. Perhaps there's the suggestion that that's Donald Trump. That certainly seems to be where this is headed. And so something that could happen, and we just don't know, because we don't know if prosecutors have a a strong case on Epstein, but if it is a strong case, it's possible that they sat him down and said, this is your moment. Do you want to be a defendant or do you want to be a witness? Ouch. That's a tough, that's the Sophie's choice for any advisor in Trump land. Do you you think his uh, visit, shall we say, today indicates anything about the timing on the Mar-a-Lago investigation, if in fact that's what he's being hauled in there for? So I think it doesn't because we don't know what happened in this visit. You know, was this productive? Is it another roadblock for the special counsel? They do look like they're near the end, but that end stage can take a while depending on how it plays out. What we know is that Epstein is still offering his advice. I mean, I think a lot of these lawyers who are also maybe witnesses still have these daily or weekly meetings with Trump where they offer counsel and advice. I am not a lawyer, but that seems like a very suspect dual role to play, right? To be counsel and witness in an ongoing investigation. You know, it's very perplexing. I mean, where there's a clear line, right, is you can't be a co-defendant. You can't be a target. You certainly can't be a cooperating witness and be the lawyer. This very nebulous status of possibly being a witness and being the lawyer 
is something that, you know, if you're with a law firm, it probably makes your malpractice carrier very nervous, right? There may be some folks who will ultimately have to stop representing trust, but it's Trump. But it's very interesting that in addition to being um, the most fortunate defendant I've ever seen in terms of people not being willing to cooperate against him, these lawyers who he's here with, you know, here at the end of the world, they are very loyal to him. Yeah, I, I I would imagine it also exposes Trump, because if he's talking to potential witnesses, he could then be guilty of tam- tampering with witness testimony, which is another form of obstruction, right? Right. I mean, there are a lot of things that we just don't know here. There's always been this suspicion that there's witness tampering going on. It's something that Trump has done in the past. It's possible that it's happening here. The interesting thing to me is we don't really know what Jack Smith's case looks like, but he seems very focused. It looks like he has a case. And he's very focused on the lawyers. The lawyers, the lawyers, the lawyers. Joyce Vance, it is a pleasure to see you. Thank you for your wisdom this evening. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight about what one Republican politician in Tennessee got away with until the media caught up with him. That is coming up next. Remember two weeks ago when two Democrats in the Tennessee State House were expelled from office for participating in a gun safety protest at the Capitol? Republicans were deeply offended, saying the two Democrats violated rules of decorum. The vice chair of the House Republican Caucus went out of his way to say that such an offense would be considered contempt of court if the House floor was, in fact, a courtroom. Fast forward to today, when a local television investigative reporter, Phil Williams of the local CBS station, Phil Williams was the first to reveal that the same vice chair, Republican Scotty Campbell, was recently found guilty by an ethics subcommittee of violating House rules against harassment and discrimination in the workplace. According to that local reporting, the Republican's victim, an intern, said Scotty Campbell would consistently harass the intern for information about her sex life. The intern said that Mr. Campbell allegedly told her he fantasized about her and another intern in lewd acts. She also claims he grabbed her around her neck, making her recoil and feel sick. This situation escalated to a degree that the intern says she had to move out of the building where both she and the Republican had apartments in order to feel safe again. When confronted about these allegations by our local reporter, Republican Scotty Campbell claimed that the behavior in question consisted of, quote, consensual adult conversations. But the ethics subcommittee determined otherwise. In a letter to the Speaker of the Tennessee State House, the committee concluded the ethics subcommittee finds that Representative Campbell violated the policy against workplace discrimination and harassment. Now, take a good look at the date at the top of that memo. You can see it right there. March 29th, 2023. That means that when lawmakers voted to oust two Democrats on April 6th, it was well known, at least to the Speaker of the Tennessee State House, that a Republican also violated some pretty serious House rules. And yet the Republican faced zero public consequences until today when he was asked about it publicly. Representative Scotty Campbell tendered his resignation today. That does it for us. We will see you again tomorrow. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.